Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's been said many times that religion will kill you. The statement is truer than you think. It's easy to get comfortable espousing a dogma and performing rituals. It's not so easy to have an actual change of heart. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, Excuses, 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 with part two of I Am Moral and Religious, which covers Romans chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 20. Thank you for joining us today. All right, let's pray together. Let's ask God that he would meet us and speak to us today, okay? Our Father, we do thank you for the great privilege we have to open your word, to read, to think about your truth, and to know that as we embrace it, that we know the truth, and the truth actually sets us free. We're looking for freedom. We want the, the word in its fullest sense. We want to know what it is to live with the ability to do what we know we want and should do. So grant that through your word today. And Father, I pray that we would hear, hear this message as one to each of us and not hear it for someone else. I pray we would deep, deeply look into our own hearts, find where we are and where we should be, and to find your grace to take us to the right place. May we fall more in love with you, your Son, and your Spirit even because we've been here for this time. We ask it in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. There is no more important nor uh, controversial subject than the means of salvation. How does a person become a Christian? What is involved? The answer to that question has varied through the history of mankind. People debate it. People argue about it. But you know, if you listen to all the answers to how do I know that when I die, I go to heaven, if you look at every answer that's ever been given, it can fall into one of two categories. The first would be maybe uh, carrying the heading performance. It's basically what we do to achieve our salvation. The other would be grace. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It's his unmerited favor through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you, there are a lot of debates within those two categories. The people on the side of performance, well, how much do you perform? And how often and when? And all kind of issues there. And even on the other side, the grace side. Well, what does it mean to know God's grace? And what do you do to receive God's grace? And, and the questions go on and on there. I'll tell you this, only Christianity is in the grace paradigm. All other religions, they fall on performance. But even though we would be a people here who say we believe it's by grace and by only God's grace, I'll tell you what, you and I, are still trapped in the world of performance. To shed it fully, I don't know that it ever happens. But let me tell you, we have been born and raised in the environments of performance. Our teachers, our coaches, parents, 
Things are said and done, whether they're meant to be or not. But they, they simply give the message, you do, and you do well, and you will get my favor. You don't do it, and you don't do it well, you don't get it. You'll not get my pleasure. And we can't help but think, it's got to be some of that with God. And all of God's Word says not so. Everything, constantly, it is all about God's grace. So what happens? We take it and say, okay, I like the message of God's grace. I buy it. I believe it. Next thing you know, we go from one extreme to the other. We can be a people who say, I believe in God's grace. Therefore, it really doesn't matter how I live. I can live pretty much the way I want to because it's all forgiven by God's grace. The other hand, we can live over here and just say it's all about what I do. So we're confused. We say, God, what is the answer? How do we understand this? The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 through 3 addresses this subject matter as well as it could ever be addressed. This is the Word of God. Let me tell my story. My story was I grew up in a performance environment, uh, not extreme, but certainly performance. Uh, I, I didn't know anything but do the right things, get the right results. I carried over into my faith. I went to a church that actually taught that. They would say it depends upon how you live. Even to the degree they would teach that when you die, you cannot know you're going to heaven because you don't know in the future how you're going to be living at the time you died. Therefore, my mind said, doesn't matter how you live now, just be careful to know when you're going to die. Then you shape up, get it right, die, get all the benefits. I remember being at an event. It was a uh, crusade, as they would call it back then. And I was at this stadium. Some of you heard this in the membership class, but I'm at this stadium, and the, the speaker asked, how many of you know that when you die, you're going to heaven? Raise your hand. I thought, oh, man, what's he talking about? Nobody's going to raise their hand. That's all I'd heard. You can't know. And all of a sudden, thousands of people raised their hands. I looked at that and said, how could they know? The speaker then said, by the way, the Bible teaches in 1 John 5 these things I've written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, I'd also been taught that the Bible was God's Word. I said, well, that's strange. And it was then that I understood grace that night. I tell the story in the membership, but it, it was a transforming truth to me. And all of a sudden, everything I had believed, I had to throw away and say, no, 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 it is by grace. I have now spent a lifetime in following Jesus, trying to shed all the performance that still is such a part of my experience and my life. I've learned this, like everything else, it is truth that transforms. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The more I believe in that truth, remember this, believe, and then begin to think on it, and think on it, and think on it, and think on it, the importance of the disciplines of being in the Scripture. I think on the truth. Next thing you know, the, the feelings actually get to turn a little bit. I'm not so much feeling it's all about performance. The next thing you know, your actions are not driven by performance. They're driven by grace. Very important teaching. 
The Apostle Paul knows that their readers are very, very, very confused, particularly the Jewish people. And as Jewish people, they thought they had it. They thought they were everything that God wanted. We were the, we're the people of God, and we've got it. And Paul, as a Jew himself, is writing under inspiration of God, and he gives God's word to say, no, you don't get it. You are not in good favor with God because you're a Jew. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to take the Jewish person as the example to say, if I can prove that you as a Jewish person are not because you're Jewish in good relationship with God, then I'm going to prove that all mankind is outside a relationship with God, outside the work of Jesus Christ. So he takes us into a type of a courtroom setting, and he's going to argue as if he were the prosecuting attorney. This week, we're going to see some arguments. We saw one last week. We'll see two of them this week that are going to argue about one excuse that's been given about why man should be okay when he faces the judgment of God, even though he's not necessarily had a loving, obedient relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to review quickly the title of the series is Excuses, Excuses, Excuses. It's found in Romans chapter 1. We begin in verse 18. That's where we began the series. And we run through chapter 3, verse 20. Let's review quickly the first three of the excuses that we've already looked at. First of all, that God is good, and based on his goodness, he's not going to let something bad happen to people like us. Verse 18 of chapter 1. Number two, I never knew. Well, God, I didn't have all the information. I didn't understand all the truth of God's word, and therefore, you're not going to hold me accountable for things I didn't really know. And so we dealt with that one. Number three, God made me the way I am. Picking up in 21 through 32, tough subject matter. But what about things that we find ourselves from the earliest years? Feel like we're born with certain tendencies to certain sins. And God, you're not going to hold me accountable for something that I didn't choose on my own. We walked through that one. Then last week, we came to the fourth and final. Again, the most important for us. I mean, truly, there couldn't be a subject matter more important to this congregation than this last excuse because this is the excuse that we would find ourselves mostly using. I am moral and I am religious. And if I can be specific, I am in a Christian church living a good Christian life, believing in the truths of orthodox Christianity. Therefore, I think I should be okay. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. We looked, to, uh, looked last week at the first of three arguments dealing with I am moral and religious. Now, argument number one was this. Without Christ, moral and religious man will be rightly declared guilty. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2. Now we're going to pick up with a second argument, and the second argument goes like this. Without Christ, moral man will not be aided by religion. 
So now he's not just talking about the goodness of how people are in life, but he's saying, well, what if we add religion? This is going to bring the Jewish person into a great conflict with what Paul is going to say because he's going to say basically, you're Jewish, that's good, but it's not good enough. And we're going to find the same message for all of us. Not Jewish, but the same message will apply to all. Four shortcomings of religion. Let's look at them very quickly. Number one, religion permits outward conformity without obedience. Romans 2, 17 through 24. So let's read this. Listen carefully. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you, you, the, you therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? If you preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Interesting text here. You know, actions say something, but they don't always say everything. In fact, our actions can be a little misleading at times, sometimes not even showing truthfully what is. The Jews were a people who said, we teach and we preach, you shall not steal. We teach and we preach against adultery. These Gentile people, they go out there and they say, what does it matter? Who says it's wrong? What's the big deal? So the Jewish people felt pretty good about themselves in that regard. Hodge, one of the great commentators of Scripture, says, says this, one is no less a thief because he believes it's wrong to steal, and one is no less an adulterer because he believes it's wrong to commit adultery. It has to do with something far deeper, and you're going to see this, the heart, the heart, the heart. Same is true for you and me as, as Protestants. We tend to think, surely, I'm a Protestant. I've got great history of truth. Stand strong on my side. I can, I can marry it to the Word of God through history, and surely... Good enough, huh? Not so. Why? Because it's an issue of the heart. You know, I, uh, I'm with people from time to time, and the discussion will some way reveal that uh, they think fairly highly of me spiritually, that, you know, you're a pastor of a church, you've been doing it a long time, and, and so forth and so on, and a good person and do good things. 
And I'll hear that, and I say, well, what about you? What do you think God's viewing you? Well, not me. I can't be in that same category, and, you know, so forth and so on. And I often think, if they only knew my heart. You know what? I am glad. I am so glad that somehow, I don't know how this works, but there'll be no jealousy. There'll be no humiliation. There'll be no issues to deal with in heaven. But I truly believe this. We get to heaven, if it were such that the one who walked most faithfully, the rewards put him in much bigger mansions, to use that analogy, you're going to be shocked to see where I live. (laughs) You are. I'm not just saying that. You're going to be shocked. You're going to say, my, no, 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 no. Look what he did. Look what, because see, something you don't see is you don't see my heart. You don't see my heart. I tell you this, I'm, no, I'm not keeping secrets. There's nothing that I'm struggling with in my life that I'm not free to tell anybody. I tell my elders, we meet together every month, what's going on in your life, what's going on? I don't mind saying, here it is. It's this area, it's that area. There's no big scandal. There's no nothing like that going on. Doesn't need to be. All you got to do is just look at the motive behind the action. And you see the action, and you go, oh, great, great, great. God says, man, look at the heart. Look at the heart. So Paul is saying to these Jewish people, you people are looking at your actions. Check a little deeper. Check out your heart. In the last verse we read, 24, he goes back to Ezekiel. goes back to both Ezekiel and Daniel, for that matter. And he says, you know, it's because of you that the Gentiles blaspheme God because of your hypocrisy they're seeing it they're smelling it they can tell it that's the difference in some of them and some of us you can't smell it and tell it usually what's behind the action we say oh they got bad actions therefore look no 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 look at the look what's behind the good the good action and that's that's what he's saying he's saying folks you got to understand religion if you base yourself on religion it permits outward conformity, but you don't have to have obedience behind it. Teaching number one. Number two, he's going to say religion promotes ceremony without substance. Verses 25 through 29 of chapter 2, he says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the law, or having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor? Of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Interesting. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, there it is, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men 
but from God. Now, the ceremony, as I use that term, is referring in their case here to circumcision. It was a sign and seal of the mastery of God in their life. It was a pledge of surrender and follow. But now with the Jewish people, circumcision just became now what you need to have had done in order to be in the people group that God says, you're okay. That's been the history of mankind. Go to any place of the world. That's the way religion works. Have you had the right ceremony? If you go to the Jewish people, circumcision, right? Now, what about today? What about Catholics? The big question, have you been baptized? Have you been confirmed? If so, maybe not as good as you need to be, but you're okay with God at least. Come into the Protestant church. You know what it is for us? It's church attendance, orthodoxy, Baptism now, not the big deal. Did you pray to receive Jesus? You understand this. You can be, you can be a church attender all of your life, and you know it doesn't make you a Christian. You can be a church attender with orthodox Christian beliefs, hold to the best of the best of the teaching, and still not be a Christian. You can add to that an experience where you prayed to receive Christ. As best you can tell, you were very sincere, but yet you never became a Christian. See, those all have to do with ceremony. Ceremonies do not create a love relationship. Ceremonies come about because of a love relationship. And with many people, ceremonies are taken when there is no love relationship. So we have to be very, very careful and not fall into that kind of a thinking pattern. The summary is simply this. There is no right. There is no, there's no practice. There is no belief. There is nothing. It is all of the heart. And what about this verse 29 we read? He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he who is inwardly. You believe that? I do going to affect our eschatology, our belief of the last days, what's going to happen. If I were to ask the majority of Christians in America today, in Christian churches, do you think that God is going to treat the Jewish person a little differently than the, than the uh, non-Jewish people? Maybe the majority today would say, well, yeah, they'll be treated a little differently. Well, wait, didn't the Scripture say that he is a Jew who's one inwardly and not outwardly? Some of our politics are affected, decisions that we hold are based on, do we believe that regardless that we ought to be for the Jewish people, regardless? And I say, well, no, we ought to be for the Jewish people when they are taking a decision that is righteous and not say, well, if you do something unrighteous, then we'll still say it's okay because after all, you are. No, 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 we've missed it. The Jewish person is the one now who is one inwardly. There was a time God said, you people, you're a special people, and I'm going to lift you up, and I'm going to model my love to you. You're special. And he makes promises, and some of those promises can have temporal, continued blessing. I don't have any problem that God may well bless the Jewish people in a temporal way because they're Jewish people. 
But the point is, the Scriptures say, now, if you want to get to who's right with God and who's got a relationship, it gets down to the heart. Not whether you're circumcised physically, but whether you've got a circumcised heart. Not whether you're a Jewish person by your birth, but are you a Jewish person because of your heart has been circumcised. That's the real issue. So, very important, ceremony, don't let it deceive you. It is not ceremony, it is always substance. Number three, religion promotes privilege without profit. Now, let's read these first two verses of chapter three. This, is, uh, this gets us into a little bit of a, a challenging area. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? You would almost think he's going to say, well, there is none. But please, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. He's saying, no, 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 don't misunderstand me now. Don't overreact and go to an extreme that I don't want you to go there. He says, what advantage has the Jew? Or is there any benefit of circumcision? He says, yes, there is. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Who got the word of God. It was the Jewish people. He said, now, I'm going to give it to you people to steward. It's not going to be yours only forever, but I'm giving it to you. Is there a benefit in that? Absolutely. Is there a benefit in being a Protestant today? I say yes. Benefiting from the great leadership that came along and said, look where the peoples of church were not following the truth of God. Let's go back to the historic beliefs of God Absolutely. What a great, great, great benefit. Does that make you okay with God? Absolutely not. Not at all. In fact, to have an advantage can put you at risk. Yesterday, I'm sure there were many, many teams. They go out with great advantage. And they go out with the advantage and they think, well, we can't lose. No problem. We're better. And then next thing you know, watch out. What, what, what happened to us there? Well, you didn't come prepared. You were thinking you had this thing won. Don't believe that. Well, then, well, we don't want an advantage. Are you crazy? You want to go into every game with an advantage. Sure you do. But don't let the advantage hurt you. Let the advantage be to your advantage. And that's what he's teaching us here. He said, you want the best? Good. Be Jewish. Have the oracles of God and have the right heart. Now, that is the best of the best. That's what you really want. Then he comes to the fourth, the fourth and final one. He says, religion produces objections without objectivity. And so, verses 3 through 8, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. By the way, that is a, in the original language, it literally says, God forbid, it is a strong term. I'm telling you, at this point, Paul is, as a, if you put him as the prosecuting attorney, he's getting a little loud, he's getting a little strong, he's getting a little emotional. There's a little bit of an irritation behind what he's saying because he's saying, what you're now about to say, this is, dr no, 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 don't go there. Say, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteous, unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? By the way, so you understand, he's taking the critics of the Jewish mindset that said, you know, we are Jewish people, and you're going to say that we're not okay with God. You don't understand. God is faithful, and he said, you Jewish people, you're my people, and I will take care of you, and I'll protect you, and so forth and so on. And so when we are unrighteous as Jewish people, it just shows how much more righteous he is because he's not going to let us down. He's going to take care of us. And Paul is saying, no, that's fallacious. You're arguing wrongly there. And so this is basically how he's responding. He says, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, God forbid, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now, what he's saying here is simply this. He's saying, whoa, don't, don't slide into that thinking. Don't you for a minute think that, uh, that we're teaching, okay, grace covers all your sin. Yes, we believe that. And the more we sin, the more we have God's grace. Yes. Well, therefore, let's keep sinning. And the more we sin, the more God's grace and the more God is honored by what he does. He says, no. Because what you're taking this is because you're Jewish, you're covered by God's grace. Don't you go there. That is not what I'm teaching. You're not covered by his grace because of any outward activity, right, belief, none of that stuff. And when you say, oh, his righteousness is made greater because we're going to be exempt and we're going to come into heaven and God's going to say, you come on in because you're Jewish and that is not showing the righteousness of God. In fact, what I'm really saying is the issue is you and it is your sin. Ridiculous type of thinking. Don't go there. Now. We've got one last argument, and there's one text of Scripture. I'm going to read it and close. But this is, where, this is where he hits it and hits it hard. Follow the teaching. Argument or uh, argument number three. Without Christ, moral and religious man is no better off than immoral, non-religious man. Chapter 3, 9 through 20 reads like this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Jewish people. We Jewish people better than they? No. But we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written. Now he's going to go back to the Old Testament. He's going to try to make his case here. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth, hear this, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, justification by faith. You know, the, the teaching here of Paul is simply to conclude a segment of Scripture. He's going to turn and, and now take a totally different aspect of, of truth and start teaching it after this. But he brings his case to an end. This is his final appeal. And in his final appeal, he says, I'm going to appeal now back to the psalmist that you Jewish people will have to agree with. And he takes a scripture that absolutely slams man down, has nothing good to say about all of mankind. And I'm going to suggest that what he teaches here when he says, I mean, look at verse 10, he says, neither is righteous. Verse 11, no one understands. Verse 12, no one seeks for God. Verse 13, none who does evil. I mean, none who does good. All are evil. It's the most important teaching, I think, neglected by the church today. We call it the teaching of man's depravity. I meet with people all the time, and I sit with them non-Christian and Christian alike, those that are non-Christians, trying to help them figure out what it means to be a follower. Those who are Christians, to help them understand how you're going to grow up and be strong. And time and time again, many of you in here have heard me say this. On an individual basis, I say, you're never, ever going to get it. You're never going to understand. You're never going to get where you want to go. If you don't understand and embrace this most important teaching about the condition of your heart and your soul, You've got to get there. If you don't get there, you'll always be wondering, why, why, how come? I don't understand. You've got to get there, the depravity of the heart. And once you begin to understand that, now all of a sudden something happens to you. Something that says, oh, my goodness, look at the vile heart I have. Look at the sin of my life. And why in the world did God come in and redeem me and rescue me? How could he do that? I sat here during the, the worship time, both hours, and, and, and tears just started coming down my face. I couldn't help it. Did you, see, did you see the words of the songs we were using? They were all about just the, the heart condition and the grace of God that he would come and take us and pull us out. There are some of you here today that you are so messed up. You've got so many issues. You are, I mean, it's pathetic. It is pathetic, the condition of your heart and the actions and the type of stuff you've done. But see, the same is true of me. I'm pathetic. I'm messed up. I got my issues. You tell me which ones of us don't. Oh, these are outward, though. They're big, and they have, they have deeper consequences to the human life while on earth. Yes, I understand that, and that is a, that's an issue. But the truth of it is, the more we understand how really sick we are inside, 
that there is none good in us. There's not at all. Until we get that, we'll never understand the great platform God has placed us on. I meet with people over and over. I say, all right, so you tell me, what do you think is true? You think man is, you think man is, is good? Do you think he's good with a little bad? Do you think he's bad with a little good? Or do you think he's just bad? And I'm telling you, every person I talk to outside of maturing Christian, everyone, they say, oh, man's good with a little bad. And I say, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get it. You've got to see the teaching here of Romans 3 that you are so sick in your sin that you can't even think of it as a sickness. You're dead in your sin. And then you begin to say, oh, God, why did you get me? That's what I said this in, Lord, why did you take me? It's why an apostle Paul could be such a saint of all saints, and at the very end of his ministry, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. How could he say that? Because he'd invited God, even as the psalmist did, must have time, time, and said, oh, God, show me the sin of my way. And what he found was all the bad stuff that I see in my heart, that's in yours, all of us. When we see that, Never again do we have this idea of, God, huh, you were blessed when you got me. And you're blessed to keep me. No. You start saying, God, why me? Thank you, thank you, thank you. He who is forgiven much loves much. And if you don't believe your sin is that big, you'll never believe you've been forgiven much. And therefore, you'll never find what it means to love much. Let me tell you, you go to the cross of Jesus Christ. You go to the cross. And there you see the love of God. But let me tell you, because you meet the love of God, and you're redeemed and cleansed and put into his family and accepted never to have to perform another inch to get anything of God's approval of love and acceptance. That does not mean that life now becomes easy. It doesn't mean that now all of my sinful stuff I can deal with without any problem. No, it does not. And that's why I'm closing next week with a message that I think is going to be an absolutely critical message. I'm going to give you three words. These three words are going to deal with how in the world do we turn around that decline morally we've talked about in Romans 1 through 3. And how about in the stuff that is, I'm telling you, taking us down, the debilitating struggles of our life right now, whether they be anxiety or whether it be anger, whether it be an addiction that starts with maybe it's an alcohol or maybe it goes to something like sexual addiction, you tell me, what's the answer? Is it just going to the cross? No, that's where you're going to get cleansed fully. But you've got to understand now, where do you go from there? By God's grace, and only because of God's grace, but how do you now go from there? We're going to take the table to conclude it all. I think next week is going to be one grand worship time. So as we close, I'm going to invite you to do something strange. I'm going to ask you to invite God to show you your sin, to show you how ugly you are inside, to reveal it to you in whatever ways he wants. And we're never going to leave this place thinking what a bad person we are. Because I want you to hear this now. 
we're going to realize how big God's grace is. And we're going to walk out with dignity. And we're going to walk out with honor. And we're going to say, I'm the child of God. Without pride, I'm the child of God, forgiven of everything, empowered by his spirit, and I'm not going to wallow in my sin, but I'm not going to neglect it. That's the balance of Christian living. Let's pray. Father, we're going to invite you now. Show us the sin of our hearts, just how deep it is, not to cast us down or to keep us morbid and critical of ourselves, but only to show us how far you're delivered us to receive us as your children, forgiven forever, restored and made now, fellow kings with you, reigning in heaven. We don't get why or how, but we're thankful. So God, would you grant us now, just in this minute, to see ourselves and to be able to express to you privately and quietly just how thankful we are. Overwhelm us with your grace and your love even now. Hear us. And now, Lord, we just say thank you. Carry us through this next week and bring us back here with even others that don't know how to get out of stuff. And we have the truth. And I pray as we seek to unlock the answer to how to recover in life and keep going strong, we pray. Bless even next week. But thank you for this time. Hear us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.